0: We're broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. I'm Pim Fox, along with Romain Bostic. I want to bring in Stephen Sarge Gilfoyle. He is the founder and the president of Sarge Nine Eight Six LLC, joining us from the New York Stock Exchange. Sarge, always a pleasure. Happy Christmas and New Year to you and your family. What do you, you say Happy to I them, to you guys? What do you say to your family or relatives when they ask you? Why do stocks go up and down?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that answer has evolved over time. They they don't say why do stocks go up and down now because of the way they used to, because they used to just ask the question the way you just did, and I would try to explain to them how price discovery works at a certain point of sale. Uh, Now they would ask probably why do stocks and down go, why do stocks move up and down so quickly and so violently? And now it's largely a, a function of electronic trading and trading in fractions of pennies. Uh, it's well, it's akin to throwing a piece of maybe a tree trunk into a wood chipper and just watching the uh, the spray behind the machine. <laughs> That's kind of how I explain uh, stock trading these days,
3: so Steven, So yesterday, after the uh, decline we had yesterday, you know, I reached out to a, a lot of traders that I know, and none of them were around. None none of them were working. So I, I'm, who's trading this week? What what's behind these big movements uh, that we're having?
2: Well, maybe they don't have to be presently. Where they used to have to be in an office in Manhattan or on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange or, or someplace close to the Nasdaq market site like they used to, they, they could probably be in Iowa or or out of the country and still have their uh, their machines working for them or even be making decisions even if they do it in slow motion like I do. It's uh, still working through a computer. I I really I can't imagine taking off when the when the volumes you know are going to be light because that's when you're at your most largest risk really. And I think you you really have to defend yourself. I'm probably working more hours these days than I do normally.
0: Well you've got an assistant there I think who's got four legs, so that's probably adding to the energy in the office place.
2: That's my little pal.
0: Okay. So what well what do you if an investor comes to you and says, how do you make sense of a 1,000, nearly an 1,100-point 1, gain in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and then the next day you see a decline, right now we are talking about a drop of over 400 points. How do you explain in rational terms evaluation based on those changes?
2: Well, yeah, you, you you really cannot justify this through the laws of supply and demand. But you, What you have to do is explain to your clients or your friends or whoever's asking you that the machines are, are designed to overshoot in both directions. They're, they're almost, I feel, they're designed to cause instability. What you have to do as a trader is, you, you even if you prefer fundamental analysis, like that's how I came into this business, from a right. fundamental angle and a macro angle, but now you really do have to learn technical analysis because the guys who control the algorithms. Who They hire guys like me who know how to read charts. So if you can learn how to read the charts, you're, you're almost in their heads a little bit. And what, what you have to do as a trader is narrow your book, and you, ha, you have to focus short-term instead of long-term. You, you've always been taught to be a long-term investor. Well, that's okay if you do that to some degree, but you have to be a short-term trader on days like this because, because technicals are the only way to get out of this without a big, big minus sign on your portfolio.
3: Well, I mean, when you look at the drop that we've had uh, in the market, you know, 17% or so on the S&P since uh, the beginning of October, do you think this has been a fair repricing uh, of some of these assets uh, when you look at some of those fundamental
2: measures? Uh, This is a fair repricing if indeed we are headed into a recession in late 2019, early 2020. The transports are down, commodities are down, stocks have been violently devalued. I think they're about just barely 15 times forward-looking earnings now, and that's only if those earnings are actually decent or, or as expected. So yes, if if we are slowing down to the point where we probably will experience a recession, maybe globally, but but domestically at least, the then items are being fairly priced at this point, And there's probably more to go. I, I, I would think that as we move into the new year, we, we're going to we might see a little seasonal bounce here. We got some of that yesterday. There's going to be a rebalancing going into the end of the year. So next week, you might feel good about your stocks, but it's probably going to be short lived because we're going to be up against some serious headline risk regarding politics, geopolitics, the trade wars. All of these are going to produce negative headlines multiple times in all likelihood before they produce any possibility of a positive outcome. And the market will die a thousand deaths over that time unless you know how to defend yourself.
0: Sarge, let's just assume that there's an investor out there who's willing to wait five years. What would you recommend they do?
2: All right. I would actually tell that that investor to split his book in two ways one you want you want the income so you need to go into the dividend names maybe not utility names but you need you need dividend names in your book because you need to provide income while you wait and you don't want to completely exclude yourself from growth so you actually want to expose yourself a little to energy because even though it's dangerous right now, they still pay the dividend. And if they're, they're the only dividend payers out there that if there is growth, they're going to grow with it. And you need the cloud. You need the cloud because that's where potential growth is going to be. And they're not exposed to China for the most part. So this is, this is the part of technology that will survive much better than semiconductors because they're oversupplied right now.
3: Yeah, talking about uh, more, a little bit more about the growth side of this. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, the, this bull market, it was easy to find growth. And now we're at a stage where even though we're not falling off a cliff, it's a lot harder to find those growth stocks. Is there anywhere else other than uh, just some of the cloud uh, software companies where we can find that?
2: Well. Yeah cloud and like and like i said the energy because i think the energy is kind of it's it's a double edged sword you're going to die with the commodity but if you can wait they're going to pay you five six percent so don't turn your back completely on oil right now even though it seems difficult i've actually been buying oil last week and this week at at these horrendous prices and most of these names are actually against those purchases already but i do know that i'm that royal dutch shell is going to pay me six percent that exxon is going to pay me five percent that british petroleum is going to pay me five percent so i have a little wiggle room here i can take a little bit of a loss before i'm actually in trouble so i think I, I actually think at these prices that energy becomes your the best way to both provide income and a little bit of growth
0: many thanks Stephen sarge Gilfoyle. he is the founder the president sarge 986 llc the floor of the new york stock exchange and just taking a look right now romaine at the dividend yield of bp it is 6.7 percent Romain, you know, whatever anybody says, 2019 is going to turn into a year of questioning whether the market can digest very large initial public offerings, right? I mean, we've heard about Lyft, we've heard about Uber, Uber, Palantir. There's like a huge list of companies that want to go public
3: yeah and and and, i mean you know who would have thought that this is the environment they're going to try to sell into assuming they go through with it but you know there's an appetite out there right
0: very good point let's find out if there is indeed an appetite joining us now is atish davda he is the chief executive of equity zen atish thanks for being here just give us the outlook for the kinds of companies and the characteristics that they display that you believe are going to go public in 2019
4: You know, 2019 is gonna be a year where we're not gonna see any records being set with the number of IPOs that we see. It's gonna be nowhere near the activity we saw in 2013 or 2014. We might not even hit the 191 IPOs that were slated to price this year. What we are gonna see, though, are some blockbuster IPOs. Those companies that are over 10 years old now and it's time to move out of the parents' basement, out of the private markets, into the public markets. I'm talking about names like Uber, Airbnb, Slack.
3: But you talk about moving out of the parents' basement. The old days of IPOs, these companies moved out of their parents' basement at a pretty young age. And I feel like all of these companies you mentioned, uh, particularly Uber, for example, are, are, are pretty weathered companies. On one hand, I guess that could be a good thing. But once you go into the public markets, particularly for the secondary investors, what are they really getting out of this? Hasn't all the growth sort of taken place with these companies
4: that, so you're absolutely right in that these companies are a lot more mature than they used to be, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 years ago when, when, when companies went public, uh, you know, equity business is that of conducting secondary transactions Mm -hmm. while these companies are still private. So, you know, with not talking about any company in particular, we've now helped well over 100 firms uh, conduct these secondary transactions. Over a dozen of them, a couple dozen of them, actually have gone public since then. And what we see is a growing appetite while these companies are still private. in people wanting to invest in these companies and existing shareholders wanting liquidity from these from these company shares and as they go public you know effectively you can expand the pool of people that can access it outside of just accredited investors
3: do do you see do you see more activity uh on on your platform nowadays Uh, With some of the insiders maybe wanting to sort of, you know, take some of the, uh, you know, whatever potential profits they've already gotten. Uh, Has that increased or is it just about the same?
4: You know, our business has kept growing, so I wouldn't say it's specific to any one company and we're seeing more activity now than before. I think Mm -hmm. we're generally seeing more activity. But frankly, I think a lot of this has to do with education to the broader public that, look, before, unless you had $10 million, there was no way you can access this asset class in the first place. Uh, You you could call up your broker at Goldman or private wealth manager at Morgan Stanley, but outside of that, you had no options. Today, with a business like Equities, then we can allow these accredited investors to invest as little as Mm $10,000 into these late-stage private companies. What we do see, though, is people saying, look, exactly as you said, you know, the value is being created in the private market. Why am I sitting on the sidelines? Why do I have to continue to wait until this company's public? And by the way, worth potentially five times more than what I already know is a good stock today.
0: Where's the money going to come from to buy these initial public offerings at a time when people are looking at their year-to-date performance for, let's say, the S&P 500 approaching a drop of 10%?
4: Uh, you might have to correct that in about an hour from now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <hour saying. laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, look, it's a good point. Uh, I think what we're seeing here is long-term and short-term minded investors coming together, and what we see is long-term minded investors. Basically, the reason a lot of these companies try to go public in the first place, the reason they try to pursue the IPO route. Is so that they can lock in these, you know, these cornerstone investors, these anchor investors, the mutual funds out there. Well, but also they come
0: on, to be honest, they just want to get out. I mean, if you've invested, you've been waiting, 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 you want a big payday, and whether it's Uber or Airbnb, you wanna get out. And that always raises the question if it's such a great investment, yeah. why are you selling it?
4: So, you know, it definitely used to be the case that the IPO was the liquidity event for all these insiders. I think what we've what we've seen in the last five, six, seven, eight years, uh, equity has been around for the last six years. What we've seen is not only the the C-suite, but also the rank and file be able to get that payday, you know, over time. in in bits and pieces. Well, sure, because if
0: you got a 30 billion valuation for something like Airbnb, boy, I mean, why wait? You want to be able to take that money and run.
4: Well, and you're hoping that that $30 billion valuation hopefully can be even bigger. So you want to at least take a few chips off the table. Right? And that liquidity, which can go towards paying off your loans or buying a house or buying a second house or what have you, it certainly used to be the case that that wasn't possible before. Now it's possible even in the private markets. The IPO isn't this discrete event that it used to be quite as much. Uh, you know, b- before it was like, oh, you haven't graduated yet, boom, you, you've graduated into the public markets. Now it's a little more continuous than that. And I think what we're going to see is uh you know a lot of capital coming from individuals who are saying well I'm not accredited I couldn't access this investment before I still believe this valuation is going to increase from here otherwise we wouldn't have seen a lot of sophisticated investors Coming to these stocks while they were still private. Are,
3: are you hearing or seeing, hearing or seeing any issues with regards to the valuations on some of these private companies? Because we've had uh, at least some of the uh, the bigger investors that have been required to disclose their stakes in some of these private companies. We've seen some of those valuations ratcheted down a little bit. What yeah. are you seeing?
4: You know, you see mutual funds. You know, mm-hmm. that have to report at least quarterly, if not monthly. Uh, basically, mark their book to market. What we see is they their accuracy. Uh, leaves a little bit to be desired mm-hmm. in terms of valuing these private companies. I mean, they are the ones that uh, marked down Dropbox right before Dropbox announced that it was going to go public, uh, and so there's just not a very strong, you know, they're just not a very strong predictor. It is, of course, still a signal, mm-hmm. and what we're seeing on the private side as far as equities on goes is. As we see the order books effectively, and legally, it's a different structure, of course, but effectively, as we see the supply and the demand on the private side start to build up, we can start to see that, you know, where the pricing is going to shake out. This happened right. quite a bit before Spotify yeah. went through with its direct listing. Right. Uh, and we were able to get a pretty decent price um, level on that.
0: We got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, Atish Davda, Chief Executive Equity Zen, talking all about initial public offerings. This is Bloomberg. I'm Pim Fox, along with Romain Bostic, and we are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. You know, Romain, today, Saudi Arabia's King Salman, he named the former finance minister, Ibrahim al-Assaf, as the foreign minister. He becomes the kingdom's top diplomat. And here mm-hmm. to tell us more about changes at the top of the governing pyramid in Saudi Arabia is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting. Dr. Wald is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. Dr. Wald, thank you very much for being with us. What do these changes in Saudi Arabia's leadership mean?
1: So it, it's not unexpected uh, that uh, he was that they were going to reshuffle the Saudi cabinet, um, particularly given what. The Saudis have gone through this past year. Um, I think it's significant uh, that uh, certain individuals have remained. Um, Khalid Al fali the uh, oil minister, and um, the current finance minister are staying at their posts. These are really key positions for the Saudis, and it does seem like the Saudis are very pleased with how they've been been handling them this year. Um, uh, Foreign Minister Adel Al Jubair, who uh, was used to be. The ambassador to the United States has been reappointed. Um I would I would say that this is an interesting move because uh he was you know young, very well educated, um really able I think to connect with um with foreigners and he is being replaced with someone who's uh older, maybe more experienced, but someone who was uh detained in, in the Ritz for for quite some time. So it's an interesting move. I would say that uh, perhaps they were not particularly satisfied with the way that Adal Joubert handled uh, the issues uh, surrounding the Khashoggi affair, although uh, I'm, I'm not really sure he could have handled them any better than than he did. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this how this falls out. It also seems that they're kind of trying to separate uh, and and make sure that it seems, at least from the outside, that King Salman is playing a greater role. Uh, whether he really is playing a greater role, uh, but I do think that this definitely uh, shows to the outside world that uh, King Salman is definitely. Um, Taking a more prominent role in uh, in the government.
3: Well, well, that's yeah. uh, that was the, the thing that struck out struck me the most about the, the that demotion, I guess, of uh, Al Jubeir. Uh, is this really a sign that maybe MBS is being reined in a little bit, uh, considering what happened with the Khashoggi affair? Uh, you
1: know, frankly. I've always thought that King Salman was really uh, always, uh, you know, kind of behind behind the scenes and, and that he shouldn't have been uh, underestimated, but um, it does seem like this is perhaps a reaction, perhaps they want someone who um, has maybe a, a longer presence, someone who's, uh, he's been described as kind of very uh, calm and uh, kind of a steady presence, and perhaps that's what they're going for. It's definitely uh, a change because the Saudis traditionally have kept their foreign ministers in in their posts for a very long time as opposed to having these rapid changes. Uh, But we're really, we're going to have to see uh, how this goes. Some people have said that it reflects kind of a a desire to, uh, in a sense, rehabilitate the individuals who were detained in the Ritz. I'm not necessarily sure that that's uh, what's really going on here.
0: Dr. Wall, can you explain the U.S.'s involvement in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen and how this could affect U.S.-Saudi relations?
1: Well, the the war in Yemen is very problematic from the U.S. point of view because, uh, first of all, it hasn't achieved the objectives that it was supposed to achieve. The entire idea was to eliminate the uh, Iranian-backed militia-type presence in Yemen, And, and it's well-known that the Iranians are supplying the uh, Houthi forces in Yemen with weapons. And uh, it just seems that this war, in a sense, has been going on and on and on. Uh, I think the U.S. perspective was they want to combat Iranian uh, expansion in this way, but they want to win, actually. And the Saudis haven't necessarily been winning at this. And so I think the U.S. perspective at this point is, This war needs to be wound down, even if it is not uh, a a case of every every objective has been achieved or or the um, Houthis have been defeated. Uh, A negotiated settlement for this point at the U.S. would probably be preferable, given the fact that public opinion has really turned against U.S. involvement in this essentially humanitarian catastrophe.
3: When when you look at the landscape of the Middle East, the political landscape, the military landscape, the pullback of the U.S. From, from a lot of areas in that region, the decline in influence of Saudi Arabia and OPEC in the oil markets, who has the most influence in terms of country leaders? Who has the most influence over that region as a whole right now?
1: Well, right now, I think Iran, <clears throat> excuse me, Iran is definitely playing a major role here. They, uh, in a sense, are calling the shots, and a lot of uh, other powers are essentially reacting to what Iran does. So um, there's always this threat Iran seems to like to make that oh maybe it will uh, send its military and, and close uh, the Straits of Hormuz to shipping. Now that's that's really uh, not a threat that Iran can seriously follow through on, but just the fact that it it likes to make this threat and kind of send everyone into this great Uh, hubbub of oh my goodness what are we going to do Uh, you know militarily the US Navy could certainly combat that in in a very short amount of time and it wouldn't cause any dislocation but the fact that Iran likes to make these threats and everyone kind of reacts to them I think shows that Iran certainly has the upper hand when it comes to uh, creating um, dissent or fomenting instability in the region
0: Dr. Wald, we've learned that the United Arab Emirates, which is a U.S. ally, has reopened its embassy in Damascus. And in a report, the UAE says that the reason that they are normalizing relations with Syria is to, quote, curb the risks of regional interference in Arab-Syrian affairs, and that is described as a reference to Iran's expansionist policies in Syria. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, I think that that makes a lot of sense from the UAE uh, and other Gulf countries' perspectives, is they see the U.S. is kind of drawing back, and that leaves the primary forces in uh, Syria right now are Russia and Iran, and if they don't want Syria to become an Iranian outpost, essentially, then they've got to get in there and and do something, and so opening an embassy is is a very small step towards that, but it's certainly a step, and I do think that in, in, in some sense, that is actually what the U.S. would like to see. They would like to see their powers in the Middle East that they are friendly with, the UAE, Uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt perhaps, go in there and play a larger role in in pushing for U.S. goals. So I I don't see that necessarily as, as something that is negative, but rather they want to play a greater counterpart to Iranian and perhaps even Russian influence in that area.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. As always, Dr. Ellen Wald is the president of Transversal Consulting, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. He's Romain Bostic. I'm Pim Fox. He's Romain Bostic. We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. And Romain, how much shopping did you do during this season?
3: Oh, way too much. Way I too always much? go overboard,
0: always, yeah. Really? Yeah. You got a lot of brown boxes sitting yeah, outside uh, the door? A lot, a
3: lot of brown boxes. We packed them up, put them in the recycling bin, and they'll go wherever they go.
0: And you even said that sometimes you don't even open the presents because you got so much. Well, you know, yeah. sometimes right. you just Lucky uh, guy. pair it off. Let's find out if that's a trend <laughs> that people all around the United States are experiencing. We've got Craig Johnson. He is the president of Customer Growth Partners. They are based in New Canaan, Connecticut, but he joins us here in studio. Craig, great to see you. I know this is your busiest, busiest time of the year. What can you tell us about the health of the consumer first? We'll get to the actual retailers in this in a moment, but do consumers have
5: more money in their pocket to spend? They not only have more money, money to spend, they are as fiscally sound as they've been in years. In other words, they've deleveraged since the whole cratering of the of the, of the recession, uh, brought the debt down. Credit card debt has gone up a little bit since then, but on a per capita basis, that's still way, way down. Um, and they have money to spend. And unlike 10 years ago, when people were going crazy on the credit bubble, you know, charging up Christmas presents off of home equity or off of plastic, which is not a good way to spend, they're, work, they're uh, spending out of current income, which is the right way to do it.
3: And we've seen those current incomes go up or at least be aided in some way yeah, or another. They're
5: right? up 3.1%. Wages are up 3.1%. And um, that's the strongest growth in a decade. And then, But it's not simply wages going up. It's also the fact that versus last year, there's 2.5 m- million more full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. So those combination of the two vectors, the job growth, that's not unemployment rate. It's the employment, number of people, millions employed. That's up 2.5 million in terms of full-time jobs. And wage growth is up. 3.1%. That combines to about a 5% increase in real disposable personal income, overall household income, and that in turn is what drives what our, was our initial forecast of 5.1% growth, which we said well, this is a good season, maybe even very good, and now what's happened is it gone from good to great. Good to great for for whom is it for big
0: box retailers
5: well first of all it's good for the consumer okay you know, th- this is this is positive but all but for retailers it's very very positive and, and the winners are uh, not always just the usual suspect because a rising tide lifts all but no you know most but not all boats and so the big box guys are doing fine and this is whether it's the big box discounters um, walmart costco target they're doing fine the big box off pricers TJ's, Burlington, Ross, all having strong seasons, Um, and some other sectors doing well too.
3: What about uh, the luxury, retailers and a luxury brand because I, he goes because right to luxury. Uh, well you know I, i'm, I'm a man of shops, refined yes. taste what can Clearly. what can i say and i uh, but we saw that you know some of these companies kind of ran into a little bit of trouble in their most recent earnings report uh seemed they had, like they had more to do of a, a global issue rather than a u.s domestic consumer issue
5: well how's that holding up well you, you mentioned global and that is part of the issue on it mm-hmm. luxury has been you know really pretty good this year and it'll grow mid single digits but it's, we don't see double-digit growth occurring there some individual categories are great in other words um, like luxury outerwear think Canada Goose mm-hmm. think Montclair they're fine uh, Tiffany's will do okay we believe mm-hmm. you know they've been doing a little bit better but in general there's a little bit of softness just a touch of softness in luxury heavily due to the foreign tourism issue meaning mostly that it's the Chinese uh, folks, uh, tourism and tourism spending is a little on the soft side versus past years. You sounded very upbeat here at a time when the stock
0: market is showing a different story. And indeed right now we're getting word that the Euro stocks 50 has dropped more than 1% entering a bear market. When or
5: if this continues, does that have an effect on the retail market? Well, to a limited extent. But, but what we've seen is there's a major disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. You know, Wall Street's running around with chickens with their head cut off. that, And then, meanwhile, Mr. and Mrs. Main Street is out there spending. They're happy. They have jobs. They're employed. And their wages are up. And so they tune out a lot of the Washington nonsense, the stock market gyrations. And they're just focusing on what they have in their pocket. And even that's been helped because of the, the, the plunging of uh, uh, gasoline prices. Down 62 cents a gallon in barely two months. It's unbelievable. And that's put extra money in people's pocket. What do
3: you see as uh, the outlook now uh, in, on the short term basis uh, for the retail environment now that we're sort of past the, the frenzy of buying for Christmas and the other holidays? You know, what happens when we get to January?
5: Well, we see you know, when, you know we've done this for 20 years, and so we see what's driving the growth, uh, and is are the drivers of it the fundamentals are they safe and sound? And again, when you go back to the, the last time we had you know two consecutive years of 5% growth, which was 2005 and six, so much of that growth was you know out of you know by, by leveraging yourself up off a of home equity mm-hmm. credit. Now people are spending out of current income, and as long as people still have jobs. And this job growth is still continuing, and as long as wages keep rising, they may not always rise 3.1 percent, but you know somewhere sure. positive. Mm-hmm. Those are the key drivers that create the household cash flow that people spend out. But on, that's spending wisely. That's sound spending. Craig Johnson, Athleisure.
0: This is an acronym that I or a, a compound v- word that I guess I'll have to learn how to use in more uh, refined
5: context. Uh, <laughs> What is athleisure and is it doing well? Uh, Yes, and what it is, it's doing well, but another word for it is performance wear. And so it's basically uh, athletic-oriented apparel, and the classic companies to think of are like um, Lululemon, the Athleta brand of Gap, which is Gap's smallest of their four big brands, but the fastest growing. Um, uh, But also think outerwear, Goose, Canada Goose, and uh, Montclair. that, those are all uh, the types of companies that comprise it. UA sells it, Under Armour sells it, Nike sells obviously athleisure, uh, 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 Adidas, um, and it's a very hot-going category. Apparel, in general, is having its best year in seven years. Um, it's going to be up about at least about 6%. And, you know, the, the final returns aren't in yet. This We're now in retail second season, the week between Christmas and New Year's. And this could be a very important week of, of the year. Um, but athleisure in general is in particular doing good, and apparel in general is doing good.
3: Uh, do pe- but people aren't wearing this apparel for performance reasons. I mean, part of the whole appeal is that it's well, just... Well, that's so you don't com-
5: have to go to the gym. You um, put it on,
0: okay. and you lose the weight, and you get fit without to do so, so you say right.
3: we're in the second season now and, and i actually bought something the other day i, I bought some towels they were 40 percent off and i'm very proud of myself but so do we see uh this surge of spending uh in this second period is that going to be uh, run mainly by discounts or just again is this just a consumer uh
5: well the the nature of the uh, christmas to new year's week to sit we call it second season mm-hmm. the second season for retail has changed over the years it used to be a place time for returns exchanges and clearance sales now a lot of smart merchants are actually putting on the floor new, fresh merchandise. Nobody wants to go into a store and get a bunch of picked over stuff right. that's left over that they saw there three weeks ago.
0: Much appreciated.
5: Thanks very much, and uh, thanks for your insight.
0: As always, Craig Johnson, President, Customer Growth Partners. They're based in New Canaan, Connecticut. Thanks for listening. I'm Pim Fox. He's Romain Bostic, and this is Bloomberg.